Welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your co-host for this program, joined by my good friend, Monsignor Jeffrey Steenson. Hello, Monsignor. Hello, Marcus. Good to see you. We continue our uh, steps through St. Irenaeus' Against Heresy. We're going to begin on page 236 today. We're in chapter 3. And let me just make sure I get this right. We're in chapter 3. No, book, excuse me, book three, chapter 11, and we're going to begin in section nine. And just to those of you that are following along diligently, if you will, our goal is uh, to finish book three by the end of next session. This, we want to do it in two sessions, and... Mm -hmm. The book three ends at page 307, so there's about, what, 70 pages left in this book. And, you know, with a good cup of coffee in an hour or two, you can finish the whole rest of the book. And and I would encourage you to do that. Right, Monsignor? I mean, it really helps. Yeah, yeah, and coffee helps, too. Well, there's that, yeah, or so, whatever your favorite so. drink is, you know, a drink of choice. <laughs> but we entitled the... This episode, it's hard to have a, a title when we're jumping from quotes and jumping over significant sections trying to consolidate the ideas, uh, but we're entitling today's episode, One Voice, One View, um, and that will, on the one hand, come out from a couple of the quotes that we'll look at today, but, it, but in essence, that's what Irenaeus is trying to do with his entire collection of books at this time in the history of the church. Isn't that true, Monsignor? And, uh, and just, uh, Marcus, I think we were going to go up the previous section to start with, weren't we? Um, so uh, section eight rather than section nine Ooh. is what I had in my note here, right Ooh. in the middle of page 236. Oh, I think we, um, oh, I think that was something that I was referring to later. What was there in the middle of 236? Uh, on page 236? Um, yeah. We were going to pick up um, with that last part of section eight, actually, where... where oh, um, yes, of course. I'm sorry. Of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Okay. And there's a reason for this. Uh, thank you, Monsignor. Um we're going to look at the half of the last paragraph of section eight and toward the bottom of 236. And I'll read that. And, and there's a reason that I wanted to make sure we looked at this because um, it, again, gets us into the early history of the ideas of the church. And here we are in the 21st century and so much of Christianity, we just assume. And, but in the early days of the church, it wasn't always is defined. And here he refers to the, to the covenants. 
that are mentioned in Scripture. And there we'll begin with, um, in the middle of the second to last past paragraph, he writes, For the living creatures are of four forms. Of four forms also is the gospel and the dealing of the Lord. So he's just finished talking about the four gospels, the necessity of the four gospels, the four uh, animals, images of the four gospels. And then he goes on, and therefore four general covenants were given unto mankind. The first of Noah's deluge on occasion of the bow, and the second Abraham's with the sign of circumcision, and the third the giving of the law under Moses, and the fourth that of the gospels by our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here we are many centuries later, and there have been many conflicting views on how do you understand salvation history, the ages of the church. And two major groupings I can think of today are the those that are the covenantal understandings as opposed to those that are dispensationalists. How do you divide up church history? And it isn't clear in Scripture Though you hear the words dispensation, ages, covenants, Mm -hmm. all these are throughout. But Monsignor, to me, this looks like in Irenaeus, he is referring to something that not he's not coming up with, but that's already fairly accepted amongst early Christians as this of seeing these covenant Old Testament covenants as significant. Um mile markers along salvation history. And I, yeah, because I think the only other place we might want to look to see, and I haven't, I haven't done it, but um, a writer that's a little bit earlier than Irenaeus is Justin Martyr. His, his work, uh, his dialogue with Trifo the Jew. Yeah. Um, I'm curious as if, if he would have de- developed any kind of argument like this about seeing these. Uh, otherwise, this is pretty. This is pretty fresh stuff. It is, as, far as I can tell. Yeah. So, I mean, those of you that are familiar with covenantal theology, especially in the Calvinist ranks and conservative Catholic ranks, of course, we have modern writers and theologians that are very much covenantal theologians, like like our good friend Scott Hahn and Jeff Cavins and in that whole group that really see that the trajectory of these covenants that go from Adam, now they would, the modern covenant theologians would say Adam to Noah, to Abraham, to Moses, to David, and to Christ, and and seeing these as the way God has dealt with groups of people, Noah with the whole world, Abraham with a tribe, Moses with a family, David with the kingdom, and of course Christ with the church, and uh, so he, he, there we see Irenaeus making reference to this. But the other reason that I wanted to point this out is the footnote. That footnote's fascinating. It really is, Monster. Why don't you go ahead and read the footnote and talk about it? Because I I really do think it's a fascinating. Yeah, it's because there are. Uh, we remember the there are 
two, we don't have a, a good complete text of Irenaeus. We, he would have certainly written it in Greek. Um, and we only have Greek fragments and the most complete form of the text of against heresies we have is a Latin translation from later on. So um, uh, Dr. Keeble points out here when he adds that footnote that the Greek fragment actually lists the covenants in a different way. Um, first is first is Adam, second is under Noah, the third is under Moses, and then the fourth is um, is the coming of Christ. So, well, actually, that's the uh, Latin version. The one we the one we have in oh, sorry, here is the Greek. Right, yeah. The yeah, one that we right. have in the in the text is the this Greek. Is the Latin, sorry, thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. and uh, and the Greek one, of course, um, um, has has Noah, um, Abraham, um, Moses, and then the Gospels. I don't know how to explain the difference between them. Do you have any thoughts, Marcus, on that as no. a a covenantal guy yourself? Yeah, I've been. Yeah, I've been pretty much covenant all my adult life, although when I was choosing seminaries for a while there, I thought about going to Dallas Theological Seminary, which which was a dispensationalist, and I'm kind of glad I, That's I, right. you know, yeah. you know, yeah. I ended up yeah. going to Gordon-Conwell, which was mostly covenantal, and our main theologian there, uh, one of our main teachers was uh, Dr. Meredith Klein, who was very much into covenantal theology, who had a great influence on Scott Hahn, and then that led to Scott Hahn's PhD dissertation on the kingdoms. Um, so I, I'm of, of that. That's my background. But what I found fascinating about it is now I'm going to po posit something, a little bit of devil's advocate here, because I do find it fascinating that Irenaeus would have written in the late second century in Greek. And we don't have much of that Greek manuscript left. I think what we have are some fragments, but mostly yeah. we have it in Latin. And I think we have some in, in uh, some in Middle Eastern languages too. That's true. Yeah, I think so. Uh-huh. Okay. So the question is, is it possible that Latin, uh, Latin translators made corrections to how they felt Irenaeus needed to be updated given their Latin Rome preferences. And I don't know what, in this case, what the difference makes. Well, but they, put, they put Adam in and they take out... Uh, Abraham. A Abraham, right, yeah. I don't know why. I mean, maybe maybe one of our listeners might have a, a a reason on that. But unless it's the Adam to Noah to Moses to Christ versus Noah to Abraham to Moses to Christ. Um Yeah, I'm not, I don't know that I've found anyone that addresses that. But 
The reason I mention that, again, being a little cynical here, is, you know, earlier on, Irenaeus makes a big point about Rome. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, we're going to have a little fun with that as we get further into this today, too, yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying, that yeah. if if you have a, a Roman-Latin translator, and that's what we have left, and, and if we see that he made some corrections— and we don't have Greek fragments for certain things. So maybe earlier on when he said that, you know, the church at Rome is the one to which every church must agree. Well, I don't know if, how that aligns with the Greek, because we don't have the Greek for that. We yeah. only have the Latin. So, you know, I've, I'm just throwing up a cynical flag there. Uh, the point being, you know, the, the question is, that's why when we read an early church father, we don't take them as infallible authorities on the level of Scripture. They are witnesses in the early church, but they're not infallible. And here's an example. We're not even sure which one Irenaeus said. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm 200 miles away from um, a, library, a good library that would have the text, the original text in it. So I'm, I've been struggling on this, but I did... I did find fascinating that um, when he, you know when he speaks about four general covenants, yeah, the the Greek there, the Greek word that's used there is katholikoi. Uh, interesting. <laughs> or Catholic covenants, if you will. You yeah. Know? Okay. Uh, um, I was just fascinated with that. Uh, I don't know. If, I mean. He was just using the kind of more generic use of that word, katholos, uh, um, or if he meant something by that. Yeah. Um, yep. Because, you know, that's something that um, we're going to discover as we go forward in the, in, in the fathers of the church is they believe that the Catholic church existed in the Old Testament as well. Um, it's all one church. Yeah. You know, it's interesting you said um, that. I... You know, this is another reason why I, when I read the early church fathers for the first time, especially Clement, um, is that the continuity of the church with the Old Testament people of God Mm -hmm. was so vivid. When you read Clement, the scriptures that he quotes from beginning to end are primarily the Old Testament. There are some references to New Testament quotes, but it could have been oral quotes from Christ and not even through the Bible in Clement. And uh, Justin Martyr, references to the Old Testament. Barnabas, the letter that that may have been Barnabas, you know, that's the Old Testament. But here we have later, and now we have Irenaeus affirming almost every New Testament book as a part of that scripture but he fully recognized that the Catholic Church is the continuity of the Old Testament Church. Mm-hmm. And again, another thing to throw in here before we move on, I recently read uh, uh, an apologetic, Catholic apologetics book about church teaching and this Catholic apologist, a good book, but he was arguing against non-Catholic Christian misunderstandings of the Catholic Church. So his arguments were sound. 
My problem with this book, though, is he begins the book in his introduction and talking about that the Christian religion was established by Christ and his apostles. And he nowhere makes any reference to the Old Testament roots. Mm. And you almost get this idea that you look at the church as beginning with Jesus and the apostles from then on. No. No. To understand the church, to understand the apostles, to understand Jesus Christ, you need to understand in the context of salvation history, which involves this, and that's what he's saying. Yeah, yeah. Abraham, I mean, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, the Gospels. It's a trajectory. It's, as we'll get it, a word that we're going to get to in a little bit called economy, the foreordained economy of God. All right, Monsignor. There's so much, we, again, those of you listening, we want to move on. Uh, we could we could take almost every page here to go through something. Um, um, well, you know, Marcus, but, uh, you know, as we move into the next section. Yes, um, yes. Just maybe um, just uh, the next probably 20 pages or so could be summed up. This is how I probably would try to sum it up that um, the Gnostic theologians, the heretics, I shouldn't call them theologians, that's too neutral a term. (laughs) These Gnostic heretics, um, he says, they either reject the gospel or they try to add to the gospel, Um, but they don't accept it as as it's written. And these next pages, he goes through a lot of uh, a lot of the Gospels and Paul's writings and Peter's writings um, to argue that um, th- these men all speak in harmony, and the Gnostics um, they either reject them out of hand or they try to add to it in some yep. way. Yep. Um, and and you can see that at the very bottom of um, page two thirty six there. They are all vain and ignorant and daring withal who set it not the true notion of the gospel and privately bring in either more or fewer individual gospels than have been mentioned. Um, the former that they may have the credit of discovering more than the truth, the latter that they may set it not the dispensations of God. Um, so those next pages then are basically to make this um, point that the Gnostics mutilate scripture and the Catholic church um, venerates it and accepts it as, dare I say, final? Well, he, again, the idea at this point in time in history is, Irenaeus is saying that it is the church that is conservative in, mm-hmm. in holding on to and preserving that which they received. You know, and you know, that's what Paul said we're to do in 2 Thessalonians 2.15. Stand firm on the traditions that you've received from us, whether oral or written. Irenaeus is following that idea. And the focus isn't the church. The focus is the gospel. 
mm-hmm. that the church preserves. And these other people don't want to listen to the church that is preserving the, the gospel that they've received. So if they don't listen to the church, they have the written gospels. And if you will, it's sola scriptura on steroids is what the Gnostics are. I, I know that's a delicate way to put it, but I think you're right on target. Um, they're radically individualistic in their approach to the scriptures. Irenaeus points out that they're all over the board. Some of them, you know, accept it. Some of them reject parts. Um, they can't even agree amongst themselves on things. And I think I've mentioned, and we both, one of us mentioned in the past, it's like people today getting PhD. You got to get something new. If you want to have a thesis, it's got to be new. And yeah. so you got to be better than the person that you received it from. So, I mean, that's what they were doing, and, and Irenaeus points that out. And if you jump to page 242, um, okay. and in the middle, and this is in book th- three, um, uh, well, chapter 12, well. section five. Right. right, right. That's right. Um, again, this is alluding to what we've been talking about because he says these are the voice, and he's talking about the, the 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 gospels. He's talking about the writings of Paul and Peter and and the other epistles. He's saying these are the voices of that church from which the whole church had its beginning. These are the words of the mother city, of the citizens of the New Testament. These are the voices of the apostles. These are the voices of the disciples of the Lord, of the true, perf- truly perfect made such by the Spirit after the assumption of the Lord, both calling upon God who made heaven and earth and the sea, who was proclaimed by the prophets, and his Son too, whom God anointed, and not knowing any other. Again, one voice. That's it. Yeah, One that voice. is his part of his argument here is right there. Marcus, did you pick out um, that interesting expression at the top of that section? Um, these are the words of the mother city. Interesting. Yes. Well, I I did a look. I did chase down the Greek on that one, um, <laughs> and it's very interesting. Um, Mother city is the Greek word metropolis, or mm. you know, met, metropolitan or metropolis. Mm. Um, and uh, in that Greek fragment, it seems clear that um, Irenaeus is speaking about Jerusalem being the mother church from which every other church has its beginning. And I think that's something worth noting, especially for us. Catholics that we um, recognize the relationship between Rome and Jerusalem. Oh, interesting. Where do you get the connection to Jerusalem specifically? Um, Mother Church. Oh, is is understood as okay uh, by using that word, mother the Mother Church that. Um, uh, because we're talking about its beginning, its beginning. These are the words of the mother city, of the citizens of the New Testament, 
Um, well, they weren't in Rome primarily. They were in Jerusalem. That's right, right. And, um, and it's just interesting that um, our word metropolitan is, is this, and it speaks again of the, of the uh, relationship of, I mean, all of it, we're all, we're all from the Church of Jerusalem. And the, the, you know, all the references there are making, if you will, you get a, a visual image when it says, you know, this is the mother city, the citizens that we, in other words, who do we read about in the New Testament? Mm-hmm. They're from that city, the disciples yeah. of the Lord, of the truly perfect, made such by the Spirit after the assumption of the Lord. The Lord is assumed who's left, the apostles, their disciples, they're in, outside of Jerusalem. That was the, the original church gathered in the upper room uh, there in the book of Acts. Um, um, yeah, we forget that so quickly. It does move to Rome, but that's partially because in 70, Jerusalem is decimated. Destroyed. Yeah, he was gone by then. And, and the work of the Church of Jerusalem, its missionary work was bearing fruit. And so, I mean, we, we think today now, when we think about the, the Church of Rome, it is the mother church of, of the churches of the West. Um, I know this is a delicate point, but yep. you know, the the Eastern Orthodox are going to want us to acknowledge this that um, um, that Jerusalem is, yeah, you know, historically yeah. the mother. And that takes us back when yeah. when Irenaeus does talk about the Roman Church, with which all other churches must agree. The footnote that Keeble puts in there is recognizing that all the churches in the West came out of that church. Yeah. And so that would be his argument to why. But in the East, we have other apostolic churches, which in time became, under Constantine, the diocese, right? I mean, that's the word, that's right. that, that yeah. was the Latin yeah. word that was used for the different areas because they were the diocese of Rome became the right, diocese right. Yeah. of the church, Alexandria yeah. and, and the different areas in the Roman kingdom. Okay, there's so much we can go through. Uh, we're just kind of glancing through, picking out a few okay. things. Let's go to jump to 246. Page two forty. Oh, may I stop? Could we could we just go before we do it. I wanted to say something about page two forty three. Please, um, where where we right in the middle of the page there, um, in section six there. Yeah. Um, he's dealing with some. We've met this idea before, but I think it's worth bringing out again. The Gnostics are saying that the reason why they have a different teaching than the Catholic Church is because the apostles were not honest. Um, when they were dealing with the simple people, they gave them the Catholic Church, if you will. But it was only for those insiders, the elect, that they got the, the real thing. And, and so in this section, Irenaeus uh, speaks about how um, what they were basically arguing is that the apostles were timid 
um, and they didn't dare um, tell that all this, all these great Gnostic truths to the people, um, because they would they were afraid of being rejected. So they kept it simple, and they were timid. Um, and then he goes on in that paragraph to say, um, by this way of talking, then there will be no rule of truth with anyone, but all learners will impute it to their teachers, that according to each one's opinion and capacity, such was the discourse addressed to him. Um, and the coming of the Lord will appear superfluous and useless, at least if he came to allow and to maintain each man's notion of God as it was before implanted in him. Um, I just think that's a marvelous uh, point about how if, um, if you can have all these little schools of thought and these little disciples running around creating their own churches, how can there be an overarching rule of truth? Yeah. Um, Just a great argument he makes there, I think. So. Well, and we see the, the shadows and echoes of that in our world today. Uh, mm-hmm. All the independent churches. There's a, a Protestant, a huge book that summarizes all of Christianity, and it's from that book. I can't think of the name of it now. But it's from that book where we get the idea that there are 30,000 denominations today and growing. It was a Protestant book that said that. And in that book, it says that a new one starts every five days. Well, why? Well, because they all have their separate opinions, their own little rules. Not one rule of faith. Everyone had its own rule of faith based on the different opinions that they're holding from the person that taught us or because they think they finally agree that that opinion was wrong or that the church now is no longer holding the opinion of the guy that started this church. So I'm going to go start a new one. You may not. That's really what he's referring to. And, and, yeah. and, and as Sonny and as Sonny. I just, if I could just, re, re, just let me re, reflect again. Uh, it's just a happy memory of your first, your first journey home guest. Tom um, Howard. Tom Howard. Dr. Tom Howard, yeah. And I remember how Tom would introduce himself as I'm, I'm, my background, I'm from a split of a split of a split. He said, (laughs) (laughs) a lot of us that are converts, um, that's our story too. And what Irenaeus refers to continues to happen. And I think even more so today. Than we would have dreamed 50 years ago, because today on almost every corner in every big city, there's now independent churches that have no, without apologies, any connection to any historic Christian church. They're no longer even Methodist or Baptist, or they're just something, you know. And, and uh, as Sonny and Cher once said in a song, and the beat goes on, you know, it just keeps, it just keeps <laughs> happening over and over and over again. Uh, um, okay. This be, All right, so over to you then. 246, yeah. there's just one sentence I wanted to jump out, and this is in the middle okay. of of um, St. Irenaeus. He's moved beyond the Gospels. Now he's taking quotes from from the, the leaders in the book of Acts, and then he's going to get the epistles. Um, but at the end of section 7 there on page 246, he says this, whereas... The church through the whole world, having its beginning firm from the apostles, perseveres in one and the same view, 
concerning God and his son. I, I just wanted to grab that one sentence because if anything, yeah. that summarizes what Irenaeus is trying to say and, and what we're trying to say and which still needs to come on today. Not just one voice, one view. One voice, one view of understanding God and his son. Yeah, because he's going to go on. I mean, we, we, again, we were talking about earlier, He he's not going to, it'll be a little bit later when we get into his thinking about the Trinity. But over these next pages, he's going to think a lot about the person of Christ, um, the one person of Christ, both both God and man. And uh, and he goes through he goes through um, the the revelation and, and especially in the New Testament, um, but also some Old Testament texts as well. And he points out there's all of the apostles are of one mind here on the nature of Jesus Christ, true God and true man. The um, to me another thing that that. I know I've probably said too many times on this program that I like about Irenaeus is he's warning Christians to to be satisfied and content with what the Lord has delivered to us. And don't get caught up in speculation beyond that. Paul said that to Timothy. Don't get caught mm-hmm. up in arguments over words. They'll just divide things. Irenaeus is saying, uh, you know, how, how God created the world. <laughs> don't go beyond. He did. How? We don't know. And what's going to happen in the history of the church after Irenaeus is going to go on steroids in the other direction is that we're going to have divisions in the church and the heresies and, and, and bishop against bishop and people and groups over words. Every time we say the Nicene Creed, it's about the battle of words. Light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made one in being with the five concepts. It's about words, and they're, they're what divides us. If a bishop had sat Irenaeus, uh, Ir- Arius aside and said, wait, he's God, mm-hmm. He's fully God and fully man, period. How that works out, we it, that's beyond us. If he could somehow in charity have said that, there may not have been a division with Arius. Or, and, and so this one view, one voice, holding on to that which we've received from the apostles and staying within those parameters— the Gnostics wanted to go way outside. Irenaeus is pulling us in. Here's one voice, one view. Let's hold to that. And then we'll know, as we'll get to a phrase pretty soon, in the economy of salvation. So, um, now, again, let's jump over to... Now, you had wanted to focus on... I think it was... Oh, 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 oh 248... I, okay. I almost I almost skipped over this, but I I found it fascinating. Oh yes, yes. Because I know what you're gonna say. in the beginning of section two, he says there is Stephen too. Now he's talking about the different witnesses, 
So you got the gospel witnesses. Now you have the different witnesses. This is in section 10 here. Section 10, section 10, page 248. There is Stephen too, again, who was chosen by the apostles, first deacon, who was first of all men followed in the track of our Lord's martyrdom, being first slain for confessing Christ. Now, my guess is that most of us today reading this don't see anything. This is what we assume. Stephen was the first deacon, and he was the first martyr. But what's interesting is this really points out something that we've come to assume that Scripture doesn't say. You caught me on this one today. (laughs) In the book of Acts, we remember the story when the, the Jewish Christians and the Greek Christians were at each other's throats because... Um, the, 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 the food wasn't being distributed to everyone's satisfaction. And the Hellenists murmured against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected, neglected in the daily distribution. This is in Acts chapter 6. So there was a problem going on. And basically what the apostles are saying is, guys, we, we can't deal with this. We need to focus on preaching and prayer. That's our calling. So we need some help. And so we read in Acts that they said, okay, here's what we want you to do. The 12 summoned the body of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Um, now, I don't know if Monsignor, if the Greek was saying that these early bishops were saying it was beneath them. But anyway, we won't go there. But, well, I think all they were, I, fair enough, they just thought their job was preaching the gospel. Exactly. They were, and yeah. I understand that. I mean, a, yeah. a Steve yeah. Covey in his book, The Seven Whatevers of a Good Leader, has four quadrant theories, and he says there are things that are urgent and non-urgent and important and, and non-important. And we fill our lives with the urgent things. Yeah. But sometimes the most effective things in our life are the non-urgent, important things, planning ahead. But when you're busy and busy and busy, you only get the urgent things done. And that's what they're saying. Hey, we need time to sit down and study the Greek so we can get our homilies together. But we're over here serving tables. We need some help. Again, it reminds us of Moses and his father-in-law, Jethro, coming and said, Moses, what do you, you need some help here. Okay, Jesus set the standard. He chose the seven, 70 and sent them out two by two. You need help. So the brethren get together and he says, okay, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolos, a proselyte of Antioch. Now, I think, Monsignor, did you, didn't you, your great grand, one of your grandchildren was named Nicanor? Did you name one of? <laughs> Not mine. I haven't heard too many Nicanors, <laughs> but anyway, but these. You know, um, Nico, Nicolaus, yep. that proselyte of Antioch. We've met up with him in Against Heresies. He's the founder of the Nicolaitan sect. I didn't make that connection before. Yeah, that's the guy. 
Oh, whoa. So. And isn't it interesting that he was a proselyte, which means, you know, uh, we have to be careful, uh, especially those of us that are Protestant clergy converts to the church. We don't expect to be advanced too quickly on things because we're proselytes. And it takes a little bit of time for the formation to occur. And it, it sounds almost as if Nicolaus got the idea he was pretty special and he just took off with it. You know, it might have been, I'm just speculating here, but when the apostles are saying, choose from among you seven men of good repute, well, one of the pressures would be make sure those seven, you represent both groups. Yes. You've got yeah. Hellenists and Hebrews, and they're all, these are convert, all Christians now, but they have different backgrounds. Make sure you get, of those seven, you choose from both groups. So they may have chose somebody who was a little too green, and that may have been why in 1 Timothy 3, when um, Paul defines um, who makes a good bishop or a deacon, he says to make sure um, that he must not be a recent convert yeah. or, or he may be puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. That's our guy. He might have been thinking about, <laughs> we messed up, yeah. let's don't do it again. And, yeah, because Paul was probably on the vocations committee. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, you remember that previous vocation committee that messed up and we ended up with uh, this uh, Nicolaus, who, yeah. you know, uh, was not as full of was not as uh, full of the spirit and of wisdom as they thought. And that's a very interesting thing because it's hard to know. We know that today, yeah. and even when you pick men for the priesthood or for any. But the point of this is, nowhere in Acts chapter six does it say these guys were called deacons. No, I know that you caught me on that one today too. I, I had, I had never thought of that, but you're right. There's nowhere in Scripture that Stephen no. is called a deacon. That came later, and I know today I've read in some commentaries where there are some people that think that these were the first presbyters to assist the bishops. Yeah. Now, I don't think that has a huge following, but my point is this idea of deacon, it isn't definitive. I'm not even sure if in the, I don't have the catechism where it's, it, it makes this definitive, whether this is deacons. But the point is, Irenaeus in 175 yeah. is saying that. There is Stephen too again, who was chosen by apostles' first deacon. So it, it, the way he writes, he's not speculating or making this up as he goes along. He's addressing something that his audience will already know to be true, which seems to emphasize that this time they were making this Acts 6 chapter, I mean, these were the first deacons. Yeah, because his, his, his boss, um, Polycarp, <laughs> and his his friend um, Ignatius of Antioch, they were they they have been 
that last generation, they were writing about the three orders of ministry. So exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. In fact, there was more, it seemed to me there was more emphasis in Ignatius and others about bishop and deacon than about priests. Yeah. Oh, that's true. Very often more. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to jump a bunch of pages now. And we're yeah, going to, you know, and, and before I, please. Start, I won't, I won't delay us much, but on page right. 249, please. I, this is something that I kind of was taken with right in the middle of the page. Um, if anyone doting about questions thinks that one ought to allegorize what the apostles have said of God, let him thoroughly examine the aforesaid discourses of ours, wherein we have shown that there is one God, the ordainer and maker of all, and have overthrown and laid bare their statements, and he will find in them in he will find them in harmony with the doctrine of the apostles. I just thought I just made a note here that uh, it's interesting that he's cautioning us when we exercise our private judgment of Scripture not to get carried away. And allegories are things that people get excited about sometimes. Um, and we should, you know, we should stay with the clear sense of Scripture. Um, um, I don't think Boltman listened to Irenaeus. <laughs> I doubt it. <laughs> right? I mean, that's the point. Yeah. Many of these modern yeah. liberals um, want to say that the resurrection of Jesus was um, an image uh, a figure of speech. It wasn't literal. He didn't re truly resurrect. Yeah. Uh, you know, and that's what they're, he, they're allegorizing. They're coming up with other explanations. And here we have Irenaeus saying, don't go there. Yeah. Which implies that it was already happening at that time. So he's, as you said, the doctrine of the apostles. I have that circled and highlighted in my book, the doctrine of the apostles. To me, I, I, you know, later the church will, when it talks about apostolic succession, I think it will, the needle of the gauge will lean more towards the, the, the laying on of hands that, you know, Fred laid on the hands to Bill, to Doug, to Bruce, to George, and that a character was passed on, there'll be that emphasis but at this point in time, that isn't the emphasis. The emphasis is on apostolic succession is the conservative preservation of the do doctrine of the apostles. And that's what you hold to. And I just, you know, I, mean, I think you, I'm sure in your formularies um, in the Presbyterian Church and the Lutheran world too, but we, I remember the Anglican one. Um, in the Articles of Religion, we're told we must never interpret one passage of Scripture over against another. We have to accept it as a, as a unified whole. It's interesting. Okay. I'm going back a page because there's a sentence uh -huh. that I have here at the end of Section 9. I wasn't prepared to look at this, but... Um, the paragraph says, now that with these announcements of his, we're talking about Paul being with Barnabas, uh -huh. 
All the epistles are in harmony. We will shew in in a suitable place from the epistles themselves when we are expounding the apostles. But whilst we too join our labors to those proofs which are drawn from the scriptures, and whilst we announce shortly and summarily what is expressed in many ways, do thou also with patience attend to it. And now to count it too long a story, considering this, that proofs which consist in scriptures cannot be made out but by the very words of Scripture. Amen. That's really. I mean, that's what you're thank referring you for to. That out. Yeah, yeah. Scripture interprets Scripture. You know, in, in an essence, yeah. that that is a a good foundation to good Scripture. I mean, if you will, the good part of sola scriptura, is Scripture interprets Scripture. But we've got to be careful that when we're interpreting Scripture to interpret Scripture, that we're really not using our private interpretation of this Scripture to interpret the our, you know, in other words, but people do that with putting Paul, a Scripture of Paul, to interpret Jesus's Beatitudes. Well, that isn't necessarily an accurate use of Scripture. Yeah. But he does emphasize Scripture within the, uh, the canon of our interpretation is Scripture. All right. Um, let's jump, if we will. Now we're going to take a big leap. Okay. We're jumping all the way to 273. And I'm certainly not saying that there isn't a, a tremendous, a lot of good stuff in between. There really is. But a lot of it is him summarizing the one voice, one view of the church in relationship to different arguments. But um, you know, on page two sixty-seven, the gospel then knows not of any other son of man besides him who is of Mary, who also suffered, nor any other of any Christ flying away from Jesus before his passion, but him who was born the same it recognizes Jesus Christ, the son of God, and that he and no other suffered and rose again. So, I mean, all through that section, he's, he's fighting against these alternative views of Christ. But I want to jump to 273, if we could. Okay. Because there's a statement here that jumped out at me, and I, I'm, I'm kind of hoping you might have a good explanation of this, and that's on um, in section 2 right in the middle of section two. And um, it's book three, chapter 17, section two. And here's the statement. For our bodies by the laver received that unity, which leads to incorruption, and our souls by the Spirit. And so both are necessary, since both are profitable for the life of of God. Now, the word laver is interesting to me. And I'm assuming that when he when he said, for our bodies by the laver received that unity which leads to incorruption, he's talking about baptism. Yes, he is. But I'm not I'm not that familiar with the term laver. Yeah, it's a, I think it's an early English word. Um I remember we, um, in, the, in the old churches, you'd have these old stone baptistries, 
um, the font, and they would have a, a metal laver that was put in the in the stone play. <laughs> That's where I think I encountered the word first, but it's it's a reference to baptism. I also noticed over on the footnote on the side. Uh-huh. That I'm assuming that's from Keeble as as opposed to a modern translator, but that was in the Keeble's original book. That it, the background he's saying is not only from Psalm one eighteen nine, which I think is R one nineteen nine, right? Yeah, that's right. Because yeah, <laughs> but it's a Septuagint version. So, in other words, he's showing that there's the uniqueness of what he's basing this on is the way it's translated in the Septuagint. I, I don't have the one nineteen nine. I'm curious now. Sorry, listeners, that uh, how can a young man keep his way pure by guarding it according to thy word? I'm not sure how that refers to that. Okay, I'm not sure of that. I just want to make out the point that he's referring there specifically to the Septuagint, which often has a different translation. Mm -hmm. But the bottom, Monsignor, of the next Mm -hmm. set, when it says, and so both are necessary since both are profitable for the life of God. And the footnote there, it's in Vitam Dei. The translator gave also the rendering divine life. And so uh, uh, the translator, I'm assuming he's saying the Latin translator of the Greek, gives the impression that what's being referred to is that through baptism, our body and spirit, it's part of the process of divinization. Yes, I think that's a fair interpretation. Um, You know, it's... uh, What leads us? We needed we needed Christ's human body, His resurrected human body, that gives us eternal life, the resurrection of our bodies, and um, His soul basically corresponds with the um, the transformation of our souls. Okay, and they're so both are necessary. And both are necessary. Yeah, so he's getting against those that want to separate the spirit from the body, that want to say the body is not important. And again, this is the foundation for our Catholic view of the human person, body and soul, one, united. So we see a reference to that here. And of course, the divinization in First Peter, we see uh, references to the... We, we don't talk a lot, especially when I was a Protestant, I don't ever remember talking about the, the verses that deal with you know, divine life, you know, because we didn't think much about divinization. But Peter talks about it in his letters. Um, in Second Peter mm-hmm. 4, we become partakers of the divine nature. Partakers of the divine nature. That's that. And then the Eastern Church was wrote more on the issue of divinization, I think, than the Western Church. 
Yeah, that's right. And the early the early Greek fathers were the ones that developed the idea more. But you know, at the very end of that paragraph, um, kind of in the middle of page two seventy three, this the Lord receiving as a gift from the Father gave Himself also to those who participate of Him when He sent the Holy Spirit into the whole earth. Um, so there, there's another kind of um, a divinization text, if you will. Oh, yes. Yep. Okay. I'm going to, looking at time here, I'm going to jump to the next page, if we can. Um, there's two things on the next page that I wanted to emphasize um, in section four. Okay. And the first part of the first paragraph where he writes, the Spirit then, having come down because of the foreordained economy and the only begotten Son of God, who is also the Word of the Father, having, when the fullness of the time came, been incarnate in a human being for man's sake, and having fulfilled his whole economy as man, I mean our Lord Jesus Christ, who is one and the same as the Lord himself witnesses and the apostles confess and the prophets proclaim. All the doctrines are proved false of those who have devised the odd goods and the quaternarians and on and on and on. The reason I want to emphasize that is we see his reference in this paragraph to the, the three persons of the Trinity, the Spirit, mm -hmm. Jesus, the Son of God, the Word of the Father, who, who became incarnate and human being for man's sake, and we see the Father referenced. And he says, you know, he's, so the, the point is, we're at that stage in development. We don't see the word Trinity yet. The, 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 the battle over words hasn't gotten us there yet. We don't see the phrase one God and three persons specifically yet. We mm -hmm. see Irenaeus staying within biblical phrases. Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, the Word of the Father, having been incarnate in human being for man's sake. You know, these are just biblical references to the three persons of the Trinity. All right. Okay, and then let's jump down. Uh, to the bottom there, right? To the bottom. And yeah. where he says, wherefore it will be our, excuse me, it will be your duty and that of all who consider this writing and are careful of their own salvation, not to yield voluntarily upon hearing their discourses without. For although their talk is like that of the faithful, as we have said before, their sentiments are not only unlike, but even contrary and throughout full of blasphemies, whereby they kill those who through the resemblance of their words take up into themselves the poison of their feelings, far unlike. A dire warning. And what were they, what were they offering? Um, fake milk. That next sentence. Yep, yep. <laughs> as if one should mix water with gypsum and give it for milk. That, that's the Gnostic um, offering. 
he would be misled by the resemblance of color. So yeah, it's it's a war. I think I hear Irenaeus telling his um, the, his readers, those he's writing to, probably bishops or a bishop anyway, um, that you have a responsibility to fight heresy, resist it. Yeah, and it's that's the danger is it sounds good, sounds appealing. You know, Marcus, if you don't mind, with that very thing in mind, I do, can we just flip back to page two sixty one? All uh, right. All just, right. Sorry, I just wanted to bring this up because it's <laughs> no, please do. So modern. Please do. Look at uh, we're in uh, section two there uh, about uh, a little bit further. Okay, look at. Um, They call themselves ordinary Christians, or whom they call ordinary Christians, that's us, whereby they can they captivate the more simple and by affecting our way of discussion, allure them to more frequent hearing. They also complain of us that although their sentiments agree with ours, we causelessly abstain from communicating with them and style them heretics well, their language and their doctrine is the same. So, you know, doesn't that sound modern? Yeah. You know, why don't you Catholics accept us? We're we're all part of one big happy family, aren't we? Um, yeah. And the church has to sometimes be clear about who is in the fold and who is outside because of what they teach and what they do. Yeah, that, let's face it, that particularly comes into being when we're dealing with who can we allow for communion yeah. to receive the sacrament. Don't we all just believe the same thing? Does it really make a difference? And of course, when people want to say that in terms of marriage and other issues. Um, well, I'm wondering, maybe, let's see, maybe we can pause there, find that. A, okay. We did, um, let's see, did we do, we did 274. Yeah, uh-huh. And... 275, you want to get into that because wasn't that where it, it was an important... That's the doctrine of recapitulation that we meet up with. Yeah. So let's stop right here. Okay. And we'll, we'll start with 275 next week with this doctrine of recapitulation, which is not a word that we throw around a lot today, but, uh, but it became very, very important in the history of the church. And yeah, and, and it'll be we'll be able to look at um, the basic uh, the basis for it in in Ephesians chapter one ten, and um, oh, and for people that are keen on doing this, um, this whole doctrine of re, uh, recapitulation in Saint Irenaeus, Pope um, John Paul II spoke on this at his audience on February 14th, 2001. Um, so if you go into the Vatican website for Pope John Paul II's audience, February 14, 2001, you can find this wonderful little homily he gives on recapitulation in St. Irenaeus. What, was it one of his Wednesday audiences? Yeah, it's a Wednesday audience. Oh, interesting, okay. Yeah, yeah. All right, Monsignor, could you close us with prayer? Okay, thank you. Let us pray. 
Almighty God, you upheld your servant, St. Irenaeus, with strength to maintain the truth against every blast of vain doctrine. Keep us, we pray, steadfast in your true religion, that in constancy and peace, we may walk in the way that leads to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. All right. Thank you, Monsignor. And thank all of you for joining us for this episode of Deep in History. We look forward to joining you next week as we pick up where we left off in Book 3 of Irenaeus Against Heresies. See you next week. Thank you. Bye-bye.